0: We
1: go. I always know the conversation is going to get off to a good start when I meet a fellow Lenny Bruce fan. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I, I, you know, there's that line in Fight Club, the things you own end up owning you. Yeah. And I I generally am not a stuff guy. But when I came in here, I, I did find myself going, this is the right kind of place to keep stuff. Yeah. And I was, I've been wandering around looking at things. And that was my favorite thing that I saw. You have that a couple of the of great Lenny Bruce posters yeah. one of which i've never seen which one oh, the the, the, the one tears. with his where he, he yeah. it's really wild he looks like an indian guru or something yeah. staring into the middle distance that's that's an amazing photograph of him
1: yeah i kind of bought as much vintage lenny bruce stuff as i could find and I, this place has sort of evolved into a semi gallery you know it's it's i would like to have a house with nothing in it and then have this yeah. place just filled with shit
0: no, I, I kind of agree with that. Also, I think that it's fun. When you have people come through a space so that you're actually, like, sharing the things, like, it's sort of like you're letting someone come in and wander. Mm-hmm. And, uh, some of the best museums in the world are people's individual curation. Some of the best art collections ever made are better than any museum because they're put together by someone and you're finding, like, the threads and things, you know? Yes. So I, I, I think when you can when you can assemble, like, Things that have meant something to you, but you can put them in a space where other people can bump into them. It's better than just like than letting them just collect dust in your own home where they you stop looking at them. You, know? you
1: have a very unusual perspective for someone who makes a living as an actor.
0: What do you mean? How, why do you think so?
1: You're a very thoughtful person. Like,
0: uh, very thoughtful. I <laughs> know. I know a, lo- I know a, a <laughs> lot of thoughtful actors. I do too. I do too. Yeah, but it's not
1: common. You got to find them. You got to curate those folks.
0: Yeah. I, um, it's a funny, it's a funny, it's a funny gig by like, by definition. It's like, if you think about all the like, the the yin yang in it, the paradoxes in it, it's like on the one hand, with guys, as actors, there'll be a lot of, um, you know, there's a certain kind of, uh, not, not macho, but there's like, you know, men will look to play intense roles and right. these things. But what you're doing is like, it's. It's you're playing dress up like, you, you know, you're, you're you're like and I, I always liked I, I always like the Dorothy Parker, the famous New York, you know, writer said, scratch an actor, you'll find an actress. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's the greatest line. It's not and it's not how it sounds just to be a little, you know, like, it's, that's not an, a, a knock on actresses. No, no, no. Or a femi- but that's uh, the real truth of the whole sure. thing is like we put on makeup, we put on clothes we play dress up and we pretend to be other people and it's like it it really is like you know um when people are like you know sometimes you, my brother and sister will laugh cuz i've done these certain things that have a certain kind of iconic intensity or whatever right mm-hmm. like and they look at me and they're like, "Are you kidding? Like, have you ever seen the size of his ankles?" He, they're like, "My brother's like, he's such a twerp. Like, he's such a. He, my brother's like two inches bigger than me and thirty pounds bigger and way stronger. You know, my little brother. And he's uh, and it's always like, he is the he's a theater nerd. He's not like tough. They're like, don't. When you buy play the Hulk, night. yeah, no, but um, or American uh, History American X, History yeah. X. Yeah. yeah, I do, but I do, I, I do think there's um there's sometimes there's a it's really funny the way there's a posture in it sometimes there's like a po- there's like a public facing posture that some people who are in this trade this weird thing will adopt and it's like it's like hey man <laughs> i hate to tell you but like like you don't have to live into some you don't have to live into it, I sometimes feel like people are compensating for the fact that what they do, in fact, is play dress up.
1: Right. Do you Do you think it's also that they have to kind of uh, project this image to ensure that they get more of these tough guy roles? Or maybe,
0: maybe I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, um, or or maybe it's like that's who they wanted to be. Maybe in a weird way, they're living into um, some some people. I think they they relish the opportunity to change the story of who they are. Mm. You know what I mean? They're, 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 they're getting to through, through getting well-known, they're getting this chance to sort of like wipe the slate of whatever it is they were getting away from. And they're getting to, you know, the, the chance to sort of create a, create a persona that they're, they're happier with than than what, than before, you know?
1: Right. Like what they wish they always were. Yeah. And their darkest times.
0: Yeah. Or, or, um, you know, yeah. There's, there's. Uh, I also think there's a funny thing, which is there's this history of famous actors, right? So and it, and it I do think it, it sort of begins with Brando because Brando had such an enormous effect on the psychology of men in in America. He really, he really like. And if you look at what I would call like the great generation of American actors, the the Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman. Um, Al Pacino, Morgan Freeman, Meryl Streep—like this, you know the whole—that's po- all like the post-Brando generation. Mm. All of those people, literally all of them, wanted to become actors because of Marlon Brando, mm. and and he he so rewrote the idea of w- what it was, what it could be that you had got a whole. It was like what Bob Dylan did in in the culture. It was like it rewrote like. It just rewrote the game, almost. or like
1: what Lenny did with comedy. Yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. Lenny Bruce, and there and, I, and there are these people who come and they have, they have like a kind of a, a permanent. They, they're a permanent before and after, yes. in in a certain kind of field. You know what I mean? Hendrix
1: and, with the guitar,
0: and yeah, yeah, yes, I would say so. I would say so in rock guitar. Yeah, uh, although it is interesting when you go back and look at rock in that era. There's that famous story of, I think of, I don't remember if it's like Pete Townsend making Eric Clapton come with him to hear Hendrix yes. and Clapton crying. Yes. You know about it.
1: Yeah, I heard that story. But
0: you can't, but you also can't discount what Cla- Clapton in, in, you know, there's those famous photos of the wall, Clapton is God, like, like. there's, it's, it's hard to like, you, you can't really underrate what Clapton did to guitar and guitar, you know in that era too right
1: no he was phenomenal but it was a different yeah. thing
0: it was a different thing yeah. I mean, Jimi hendrix was was a protean he,
1: he seemed like he broke through to a new dimension
0: yeah, like I he popped yeah i agree through
1: the membrane of existence into this new <laughs> sound and there's guys that are like there, there's people that have a distinct set like do you, are you a gary clark jr fan
0: no i can't
1: gary clark jr is a phenomenal blues guitarist okay and he has a sound that's almost instantaneously recognizable as gary clark jr you hear him and you go oh my god there it is like everyone who works with him is just like they just walk away sweating just
0: going jesus christ wow it's phenomenal i feel that way about willie nelson i think willie nelson is legitimately in in country music like there's before and after Willie Nelson, like, and, and you can say that he, you know, that Hank Williams Jr. or whatever that he, but Willie, Willie Nelson to me is the hinge around which it goes from being something that had, you know, it had a Nashville kind of Grand old Opry kind of polish to it. And he basically took it, he reclaimed it in as this like American roots Mm. thing and put jazz in it that's what's so crazy is people anyone who plays music knows like willie nelson is essentially a jazz guitar player like and and he's he, you know redheaded stranger is th- to me that's a before and after kind of a thing too like there's that out that whole outlaw thing and i think there's a whole lot of it's almost like after that there's two camps there's still going to be like the you know the um Steve Earl in his Copperhead Road thing is more the posh thing, but then there's like Steve Earle Roots, Steve Earle, you know what I mean? It's like he almost like straddled it. But but my point about Brando was just that like he 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 changed the he changed the idea of the type of person that male actors wanted to be. They want suddenly it was like they wanted to have like a patina or a reputa- as a visceral, they wanted to be visceral, not polished. They wanted to be muscular. Mm. They wanted to be masculine. They wanted to be, um, y- you know, uh, intense. Like th- those were not the kind of words that people, when you think back on like Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, like that, that is not what. Right. that is not what movie stars were aspiring to. They were aspiring to polish, a kind of a polish before Brando and there after There was an authenticity, Brando, was, right? Yeah. There's
1: a, a, there's, a some, there's something to his performances where you go, oh, well, this is more like real life than a fit, like on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Like the, the I could have been a contender thing. Yeah. Like when he's doing that, you're like, well, the, oh, this is how someone would actually behave if they felt like their life had been a disaster and it could have been avoided.
0: Well, you just hit on something though that I, I, it drives me nuts because when people sort of talk about Brando, they're like, you know, there's sort of the like the Stanley Kowalski, um, the the brutal masculinity, etc. The thing about Brando is he is beautiful. He's an, he's kind of this enormous Roman-looking guy, but it's it where he kills where he really kills is this kind of broken sensitivity that he had and and I could have been a contender is not a tough guy speech right. it's the opposite it's yeah. it's a broken tough guy it's a guy practically crying saying like you were my you were my brother and you should have looked out for me. I needed you looking out for me and my life is my life's gone down the toilet yeah. because of that in that moment. You didn't look out for me. Well, it's it's also, it, you know it's it's like tearful. It's not yeah, and it's, and even st- even the best moment of Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar is is really it's like when he falls on his knees in front of his wife and cries. You know what I mean? It's like that's what he he was way better in in a lot of ways, to me, it's the fact that he was actually kind of in touch with his emotional life. It's not that he was like right. so macho right. at all. It's that he he looked that way, but he was, but he actually had this like poetic sensitivity.
1: Yes, and it was it it resonated real, like it felt real. Yeah, and the, if you watch actors before him. There was a certain, uh, the, uh, undeniable theatric element to what they were doing mm-hmm. that was like, oh, this guy's acting. Yeah. Whereas he was, he seemed like a guy who was really living the scene.
0: Yeah, yeah. And some of it it, it, it. Sometimes I think it sounds silly to say the instrument of a person, but he he has this crazy. He's he looks the way he looks, but he's got this marble mouthed. He does, he's not articulate. Yeah. He doesn't come off as like he, there's a mushiness to the way he speaks and a kind of a um yeah it 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 doesn't have a style you know the the guys before that it was you felt their you felt that they were working on their style yeah and and he seemed to be sort of like scratching his ribs and and mumbling and and um you know in a t-shirt and he just was he was kind of present in the moment
1: I think it was all accentuated by the way he ended his life, like the end of his life. He was enormous. Yeah. Gigantic fat guy, and he just, it just given in to all of his vices, and he was just this guy. He, he was a beautiful man. Yeah. But he just didn't seem to give a fuck about that at all.
0: Yeah. I think he said something to me one time about how, um, how much he was enjoying his life when he was like 23 and and he's like, I, you know, even when he was doing the play Streetcar that made him famous, he was telling me, like, he would get with his pal Diego and go up to Harlem, go to clubs and hit on girls and all these things. And he, and I said, you weren't aware of what was going on, you know? And he goes, well, there was, I was aware of a certain amount of noise rising. And then one day I woke up and I was sitting on a pile of candy. <laughs> That's what he, and um and I thought, what a really wild way to say it, and I do think I'm not even joking. To me, it's like what you said. It was like after that, they were just. It was like there was no boundaries. It was like they get, He was getting every. Everything was. He he he, he wasn't going to be able to resist. He wasn't disciplined. Yeah. he wasn't a super disciplined person. He was a very poetic person, I, and I don't think he was disciplined. And I think that a lot of what happened, you know, he had like something like 17 children. Um, and and he got, you know, he had appetites and he had these things, and I, I think that um, I, I do think that he, you know, strugg- struggled to to deal with all the things that came with being that famous, yeah, you know?
1: and being that famous when there wasn't really a lot of examples of how to do it right or wrong before you,
0: yeah. Uh, it's
1: sort of the Elvis thing
0: right it, yeah it's the Elvis thing the, the flip is like Dylan who I still find myself like when you watch the new Scorsese have you seen that thing Rolling, no. Rolling Thunder it's really worth watching that um, or the original Scorsese doc about him one uh, No Direction Home like here's this guy he's like in his early 20s and they're coming at him with all this like voice of your generation all this stuff and he's like that's nothing I can relate to man you know, and he's and he's going like I can't help wondering if Lenny Bruce loved dylan he I don't know that, but I would think that Lenny Bruce was tuned in to Dylan because Dylan's thing was like, don't ask me what it means, man I wrote it i, I you know I don't know what it means what what do you think it means? He was just constantly going buzz off, man, I'm not picking it apart for you i'm mm. not I'm not gonna pick it apart for you, I'm not gonna like buy into this stuff you're putting at me, and how did he have he was 20, 20, 21 years old. Like, who resists, who resists people falling all over them to call them great when they're that age? Right. Nobody. Right. Nobody has that kind of, like, sensibility, sensibility to go, everything you're bringing at me is going to be bad for me. And wow. I, it's, a, it, it's like, watch the, if you watch those interviews with him when he's that age, it's pretty astonishing. Because to your point, like, you're like, oh, thoughtful actor, whatever. I look at him and I'm like, nobody has that discipline at that age.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how uniquely qualified he was for that position at that point in time and that very strange, tumultuous time in history as well.
0: And not only that, right at the moment that that like Joni Baez brings him out on the stage at the Newport Folk Festival and basically goes, this is the prince, this is, I anoint you, he's the one, he's Neo, He's the he is the one. And the next year... He doesn't even take 1 year to go to go let me just let me just lean into your love the next year he comes with an electric guitar and plugs it in at the Newport Folk Festival and people start screaming in agony like going what are you doing like you're Bob Dylan you're the king of folk you can't plug in a guitar and people are like running to try to cut his cords with an axe <laughs> in this thing like that's how much of a betrayal and he's like there's people yelling traitor at him, and he's going, I don't believe you. You know, I think you're a liar. Like, and, he, and he's turning around to Robbie Robertson and going, play it loud. I mean, the guy is so punk rock. Wow. He's so totally punk rock. He, he was as punk rock as anybody ever.
1: I think he probably had to be just to resist what they were trying to box him into.
0: Yeah, and by, but there's never been anybody who was more like, oh, you like what I'm doing? I'm gone. I'm over here. <laughs> like, enjoy. You're going to not like it because you like what I just did. Now where I'm going, you're going to be discombobulated and upset, and eventually you're going to catch up, and then when you catch up, I'm going to move on to something else. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really, it really is amazing. It's amazing because how many people do you know in any of the things we all do who get a taste of a thing and don't, like, lean into it for a while, right? right? Like, who don't kind of go, well, this feels good, you know? Maybe I'll just hang out right here and...
1: Well, it's always weird when you see somebody lean into something and it's not really them and they become what people want of them, you know? And Yeah. Like, a great example in comedy was Kinnison. Kinnison, when he made it, Uh, everyone he wanted to lay these gigantic lines of coke for him apparently Hmm. they're like oh it's him it's him he's here they just laid some giant line of coke and he would joke around about it like i had to do it and you know he would do you know a giant line almost have
0: a fucking heart attack right i can't not live into the thing because then then yes they'll stop trusting it right right. but you
1: become a caricature you become this thing like dice clay is another example like Dice Clay used to be, that used to be one part of his act. His name is Andrew Sil- Andrew Silverstein. Right. So he would do his act, and then the Dice Man was a character that he would do, but people loved it so much when he I, would do that character that the character became his whole act, and then he became the character. Where you see him in real life, he's wearing like weightlifting gloves and, you know, he's walking around in a Gold's Gym t-shirt. He became right. that guy. He's hilarious still. Yeah. but. He's that guy now.
0: Like but he now he's kind morphed. of out the backside of that, wouldn't you say?
1: In 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 what way?
0: Well, now he's like acting in things. He does and do that and, 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 and act well. Yeah.
1: But he still does the same kind of stand-up. Really? Like if you go see him, it's still hilarious, irreverent, just uh, complete, like not of this era.
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you a question because I, um, I think it's interesting. I think uh, in that vein, like if you look at Howard Stern who – I, I've met only a couple times, but I had I found him to be like an extremely, extremely thoughtful guy. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I, I don't mean that. And he just was very, he's very, intelligent, really smart. I yes. mean, that's again. But he's also like, um, I don't know. The, the conversation we have mutual friends, and I and I um, and I really enjoyed talking to him. Like, I thought, I thought, like, oh, there's nothing tricky about him at all. He's really like down in his shoes. He's interested. He actually asks questions. I mean, there's some people you meet and you're just right. like, oh my god, they're, they're talking in a mirror. That you're, you're you're a mirror and they're just looking at themselves while they speak to you.
1: They're waiting for you to get done talking so they can talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But he, um, but I think what I think is really interesting is like, so Howard, imagine imagine the pressure because I and I grew up in the Baltimore area. He was on DC radio. He was on DC 101. Um, I remember I remember that. The shock of yes. him literally and um, imagine you know the pull to deliver on what you've built which was obviously you know a huge audience that wanted this thing to me it's really interesting and impressive that Howard's kind of and I'm saying it like I know him I don't know him but watching it to me this idea that he's kind of said hey look I, I you know I'm I'm going to be honest about where I'm at, and uh, in some measure, I'm going to say there's things I've done I regret. There's ways I've treated certain people in the interest of the show that I'm kind of I'm done with that. I don't really want to be that guy. And in some measure, you know, he's kind of saying to his audience, like, you got to deal with me where I am now. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, now, like, it's not like there's like a huge risk in that because his, his audience is gigantic. Right. Um, well, it's
1: also he's so successful and yeah. so universally praised as being the most important figure in the history of radio. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no one who does like what I do podcasts that right. doesn't owe a gigantic debt of gratitude to Howard Stern. The fact that you know he he was getting fined by the FCC. Yeah. I mean, they were hundreds of thousands of dollars he kept getting fired from radio stations yeah. We kept doing kept doing it the way he did it and right. it changed the way people do talk radio
0: honestly the fact that we can even the, the fact that we've talked as long of, as we've talked up to now is a function of him proving that there was a tolerance for long form yes. basically you yes. know what I mean I mean it's like people knock on Netflix or whatever yes. I'm, like, I'm like anything that there's an amazing thing going on in the world right now which is people are People are re reproving or reconnecting with the fact that for all of what goes on on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all this bullshit, like the truth is people people like and have the appetite for, and their brains enjoy longer form conversations yes. and longer form stories more than than it was assumed they did, you yes. know what I mean and like popular culture feeds us a lot of like fast food and Xanax in like a speedball of of you can't handle anything. You don't want anything more than than literally like a little bit of junk food with a little bit of Xanax because you just want to lie on your couch and watch someone else save the world. That's I know that's all you want, but that in that is not true. And I think like you know, you look at things like like from Peaky Blinders to Chernobyl to like the Ken Burns Civil War series, like we're going through this thing where people are Realizing like, no, that's not actually true. People actually like you, my pal Dax, you know, Shepherd, who's got a great radio show. People like to listen to people have actual conversations.
1: Well, they're also listening. It's a new way of ingesting entertainment. Like you're getting it in your car. You're getting mm-hmm. it in your ears when you're at the gym, while yeah. you're on the subway or a bus or a yeah. plane. and it's you're getting these stimulating long form conversations that maybe maybe people didn't even know they wanted, you know. Yeah, I
0: agree. I agree. Yeah, everybody but, but loves a great but,
1: conversation with someone. So it's like you get to have that conversation without participating.
0: Right. Right. And 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 Stern definitely was like we we're talking about before and after like I, I, there was talk radio, but that but it kind of starts there. I think I think you you started to be like, I can listen to this guy for a long time. Yeah, he broke
1: through the membrane, like we were talking about Hendrix entering into a new dimension of sounds. He he broke through the membrane of talk radio, and... What he's doing now is, well, now he's a man in his 60s who's extremely wealthy and he has some, I'm sure, some regrets as you were talking mm-hmm. about the things that he's done in the past and said in the past. And he's also like, this is who he is now. He's not going to pretend right. that he just wants to bring strippers in and have them ride the city right. in every day. And when people get upset that he's changed, well, I hope you change too, man. Yeah. I hope everybody changes. No, that's what I
0: mean. I admire – I mean, true. Yeah. it's true. It's It's not quite – Dylan when he's 24 and being anointed plugging in a guitar but I do think it's when people sort of go hey uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna be where I am yes and, and you gotta deal with it Right, uh, uh, that's positive I think
1: well it's definitely better than leaning into it and being what people want you to be and yep. then be struggling with that and tortured
0: by that I actually think most of the most of people who I think that mostly ends up badly
1: yes Yes. Yeah, I think whenever you don't go with whoever you actually are and whenever you don't acknowledge that whoever you actually are has changed, you know, if you're growing and learning and having these epiphanies and these realizations about yourself and where you fit into your own life and how you've interacted with people in your life, you're not making adjustments – and you're only doing it that way because you think that's what people expect of you. Mm-hmm. Well you're you're a prisoner to your own first incarnation. Yeah. You know, the the first thing that people saw. And that was Kinison. Was, oh, oh! Right. And he's a kind of a prisoner to that forever. Yeah. And acknowledged it.
0: Yeah. You know? It's why it's why anybody who um any it's not even act two, anybody anybody who sh- who can, who keeps doing interesting things through phases is even more impressive.
1: Yeah. That's also, is it hard as an actor too, if you, if you get an iconic role and then you are sort of always remembered for being that guy in that thing, like how, how much of a, is, is it a hard transition to go from an iconic role to going into your next role? Would people still want to talk about the, the the big movie that you were in just a year or two ago? Hmm.
0: It's never that hasn't been a big thing for me. I um. I think uh, I take I tend to take a bit of time between things. Um, and also, I I don't know when I, you know, like the first thing I did, what well, kind of popped off pretty hot, and then and then everyone's like sending me like, <laughs> this is you know psych, psychotic. Right. Psychotic, interesting characters. And I was like, well, I think I'll do a musical with Woody Allen. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um wear a plaid jacket and yeah. do a dance number in Harry Winston's like, like switch just, it up. Yeah. Or or and um and then what's really weird is I did that first I did a I played this lawyer, I played a young lawyer in the Larry Flint film, right? Mm-hmm. Which um and off of that I got I got this distinct vibe of like, hey, the next John Grisham movie Is like the the way you were talking in court in that movie. You would kill in this John Grisham thing as the young lawyer or whatever. And um, and uh, I remember I met um, Francis Coppola was going to direct The Rainmaker, this Grisham thing, and I was up for it. I didn't get it. Matt Damon got it, Um, and I I didn't do some ballsy thing and like say that's not for me. I was like (laughs) I was like Francis Coppola. I was like I want this, you know, thing. But when I was talking to him about it. and thinking to myself a little bit like this seems a little square, but it's like Francis Coppola, you know what I mean? And it's like, uh, and and he, when I was talking to him about it, he was like, well, what you know, what what are you inter- What are you working on? What are you interested in? And I was telling him about my friend David who had written uh, this American History X, and that we were working on. I was kind of telling him what we were trying to do with it and how we wanted to make it is this kind of like guerrilla, you know thing. And, and he was like, you should do that. You should do that immediately. And I was like, well, I want to, I, I was like, don't, don't, t- I, I was like, don't cancel. Don't, don't, you know, I still want to do this with you. He's like, no, no, I think you should do you, like the way you're talking about that. And he said, if you do that now, they'll never, they'll never know what to do with you. Like they'll never, be, they'll never mm. be able, able to put you in a box right. kind of um, uh, because that's just, you know, if you pull that off, and and I kind of was like, I, you know, it. It I did have an agent at the time. It was really old school, really funny, and he was kind of like, he didn't understand that. He he was like, he was like, find something big. Let's find something big, big director, big film, big franchise, whatever. And I I remember thinking like, nah, I think I'm going to do this. And um, and we knocked that off. And the funny thing is, you say, well, does that become a trap? It that wasn't a trap. That was like a liberation. It's almost like doing that part it was like a permanent hand grenade on, it was like, it was like, well, uh, we never know what to expect now. Right. right? So it's, it becomes like liberation on a, at a certain point. Cause like I weigh one fifty. you know, like I'm not big. So like, once you do something like that, it's sort of like, Hmm, when th- this guy's, this guy's, this guy's kinky what the hell are we gonna do with him you know what i mean um right and then it's just sort of like uh you get to decide for yourself in a way
1: that's brilliant yeah like robert downey jr as amazing as he is Is always going to be iron man like that sometimes you get one of those roles you know like uh thor chris helmsworth Mm -hmm. he's fucking thor
0: dude you're thor forever you know you flirted with that it it depends on and and i think it depends on how many of them you do
1: but when you did the hulk were you worried about that
0: a, a little bit. Was there any a hesitation? Because I was surprised mm-hmm. when you did that. I, I, I was got, like, this is I an get, interesting well, choice. As is evident, I got more worried about it. Uh, you know, I I I was I was very interested because I loved it. I I I'm not like snobby about. I loved those like comics, and I Me I too. subscribed to them. Yeah, I, I subscribed to Hulk. I um all the darkest like Dark Knight, Frank Miller, sure. the <clears> whole. All of it was really, you know, it was it was um, it, it it was it was something I really latched on to, and and I love the Bill Bixby uh, Hulk, yeah, like he's it for me. He's always mm-hmm. it, for anyone our age, like he's you know yeah. him walking away at the end of the show. Yeah, that's it. Um, and I, I, I so yeah, no, I I I thought it, uh, I tend to get. Just the way I felt about American History X, I actually thought American History X was sort of like Othello or Macbeth. I thought it was—that's what I said to David. He had written this kind of edgy thing with a drug plot in it, and I was like, I think you strip all that away, and you literally just make this about rage destroying a person who's got a lot in him. It's like it's like a Shakespearean tragedy, but it's just it's skinheads, you know. And that and that really lit David up, and that's where we went with that, right? But Hulk, ha, Hulk is like the um it's uh Prometheus, right? The guy yeah. who steals fire from the gods for people, but he gets burned doing it and is cursed, right? He he he's trying to take like the power of nature back out to people from the gods and he gets burned. And that's how I that's how I thought about it. I was like if we could do something like that that leans into this guy who thinks he's going for something good that's going to help humanity, and he cracks open, like, the backside of God and, and takes something out that is not meant to be taken out, and now he's cursed, like, cursed. You know, that, that's what was amazing. Even as silly as the show was on some levels, Bill Bixby was cursed. Yeah. Like, that's what – and the end of every show, you were like, oh, my God, he's Poor still bastard. cursed, like, yeah. alone in the world and cursed, right? And there's something pretty, pretty heavy in that, like, pretty – cool in that and uh and so so it was it wasn't um it you know i i thought it was like really worth a crack
1: i fucking loved it how did that scene come to play where you were with hicks and gracie
0: oh because i because i was i studied aikido when i was in college um i i was studying aikido um and then when i was studying aikido uh um Hoist Gracie won the, you know that was went to the fighting championship. That was like the late eighties, right? Nineteen
1: ninety three.
0: Ninety three. Okay, close. Yeah. Five so years he later. right. So but he, I became aware. Oh no, that's it. That you're right. You're right because I was in New York. I was studying Aikido in New York, and, and Hoist Gracie, won that first UFC. And like I said, I'm I'm six feet tall, but I literally, if I'm in shape, I weigh like one fifty five, right? And Hoist, when he won that, was like six feet and under 180, right? Yep. And I remember it melted everybody's mind. Yeah. I mean, it melted everybody's mind. And I, um, so I I became interested in them and, and what they were doing, honestly. Do you, do you know that, um, you know, in the story, in in that family's whole crazy story about being, um, you know, they were Scottish. Uh, the, the grandfather was Scottish, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like a, a consular. A, he was a customs. He was a customs official in Brazil. And because he had a good relationship with the Japanese consul and helped, was was very generous in helping Japanese people get their papers to come through and in, the Japanese consul, I think the story is, who, who knew Aikido and Jiu-Jitsu, offered to like teach his sons.
1: Yeah, it was Count Maeda. Right. Yeah, who right. came to he came to Brazil and taught Carlos and Horian and and Helio. Well, mostly Helio fa- were the fathers yes. of the
0: Hoy 6th generation, and right? And
1: Ilio's oldest son, I think. I think uh, Horian was the oldest son. And he's the one who created the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But Hickson, the reason why it was so significant that you had him is that was the champion of the family, like right. undeniably, undisputed, everyone, everyone throughout jujitsu. This it's very, yeah. very rare that one figure is universally recognized as being the superior product of jujitsu, and that was Hickson.
0: Yeah, and you, you always, I yeah. if you followed that stuff at all, you kind of yes. heard that breakdown of it. And yeah. I thought, I thought a part of the story, I think Hickson told me when we were in Rio, I think what he said to me was that the reason Gracie Jitsu became its particular derivation and its particular kind of things that allowed Hoyce to do so well was because their father was smaller yes. than his brothers. That's Ilio. Right, yeah. and he and beca- and they were all bigger and because he was smaller, he adapted, yes. you know, he adapted the style to work for a smaller person against a bigger person, yes. obviously, and um and then that kind of like reached its its pinnacle with Hoist winning that. Yes. That tournament which 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 this this gets down in the weeds for people who aren't into this stuff, but the but it was I mean that was that you talk about these things the cracking through moment right yes. that was a cracking through moment it was like wait a minute a guy his size just literally won an all form all size tournament like how is that possible you know what I mean and it was like it was like jaw hits floor and to me what was really interesting was I was really little all the way until literally the end of high school I was very small. I grew a lot um, in my like when I was like seventeen, but I was really interested in Japan and I was interested in martial arts and you know James Clavell's Shogun, like not mm-hmm. you know, and um, and I would take I, I took like a karate class and it scared me. I it was people if they were bigger and faster it was just scary. If you were little, it was like I can't. It doesn't matter if I can do these combos or whatever. In truth, I'm terrified of. Anybody bigger than me, and I don't feel that this is teaching me anything that I would have the confidence to to use to defend myself. Right? That's how I felt as a kid. Mm. And when I when I bumped into Aikido, I it completely changed my mind. The guy, there was an incredible teacher in New Haven when I was in college, and he was small. He was like you know maybe smaller than Hoyce Gracie or whatever. And the guy was unbelievably like potent, like just. In one of the most potent teachers in anything I ever had, I was riveted by this guy, and um, and uh, and it kind of started to make me believe that with grap- grappling and locking, which there's a lot of there's a lot of jujitsu in aikido, mm-hmm. and I was sort of like I was fascinated. I started feeling like this 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 makes me feel like I it's not like kicking someone's ass at all. It's just more like I feel more empowered. I feel, I feel able, able to handle an authentic situation, yes. um, which is just mentally empowering more than like I want to get into scraps. Right. And it was just kind of amazing. It's like having a secret in a way like, whoa, there's a secret to a much smaller person being able to lever a much bigger person. And then that thing happened with the Gracies, and it was sort of like, the whole thing cracked open it was like this it was like proof yes in a way you know and and if you were interested in that stuff it was an incredible moment but because of my interest in that for years when we went to rio rio and i had been working on the script of that movie and stuff and i was like i was really interested in this idea that banner is is desperate for control right that he desperately desperately needs to control his heart rate his breathing mm-hmm that it's a massive liability in his mind if he can't control his emotions and his adrenaline. And I was like, well who in the world and, and I I'd seen the videos of Hicks. I'd never met him or any of them, but I'd seen the videos of him doing the um amazing stuff with his stomach. Yeah, the yoga. Yeah and yeah. the breathing. Fire breathing. And I was like and I I just was like, we have to and and everyone was like, who's that? I was like, <laughs> I was like I was like, Philistines. You're all Philistines. Like I was like <laughs> And I was like, find me Hicks and Gracie and ask him if he'll do a scene with me in the movie being the guy who's training Banner to like calm himself. And he was there and he he did it with us. And it was like, I was like.
1: Yeah, there it is right here. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw this in the movie, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, what a smart move.
0: Yeah. And I was like. I yeah. was, I was like, yeah. See, I got, I forgot this. Holy crap! I haven't looked at this in a long time. He's look how charismatic he is He's too. Amazing. I mean, the guy, the guy could have been like Charles Bronson, a hundred percent, like a movie star. Did you ever see Choke,
1: the documentary? Yeah, one of the greatest documentaries in 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 history. And it's like pumping absolutely, iron. Yeah, yeah, absolutely for martial arts. And it it, uh, it details Hixon's uh, journeys to Japan. To fight in Japan Valley Tudo, which was around 94, which is right after his brother had won the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Mm -hmm. And the story was that if his brother lost, Hickson was going in. Like the idea was well, we'll bring in Hoist because it's more impressive. He's a smaller man. He's not physically imposing. Whereas Hickson in that video there, he was older. When he was young, he was, you know, very fit, and he was big into yoga and physical fitness, and he had the strongest body of all the greats. He's like mm. he looked very formidable. Right. Whereas Hoist looked unassuming, and it was a more of an advertisement of Jiu Jitsu if Hoist could beat everybody, and Hoist wound up doing. But if at any reason, right. if they needed to bring in the big gun, <laughs> it was going to be Hickson. And, and Hoist always talked about it. Like, Hickson could tap him left and right. And right. everybody was like, that doesn't even make sense. Right. Hoist is the ultimate fighting champion. Yeah. He's the guy. But his brother would just run right through him. He, run right, he would run right through everybody. He would. They would have a line of black belts, and they, they would all wait for their turn to get tapped. And they would roll with Hickson, and he would just dismantle everybody. People that thought they understood jiu-jitsu. It's so... There's so many levels and layers to jiu-jitsu that even though it looks like, what is the difference? This guy's doing an arm bar, you're doing an arm bar. There's specifics in the intricate aspects of the positions that Hickson understood that they just didn't understand. And then on top of that, he had much greater control of his body because of his yoga background. I mean he he became obsessed with yoga and breathing yeah some breathing and and something called gymnastica uh natural which was like a a style of movement that was like sort of like vinyasa yoga with all these like flowing postures but also with a bunch of like almost like animal movements to it too Mm. and it was a very physically demanding thing and he became outstanding at that as well all right (coughs)
0: But it's Um,
1: people don't – from the outside, when you start talking about things like jujitsu and ultimate fighting, you think of it like as brutal, violent. But it's an intellectual pursuit and it's a spiritual pursuit because to be the person that can overcome all of the obstacles, you have to have incredible control of your emotions and your thought processes and your understanding of who you are. And that, I think, is one of the things that separated Hickson from everybody.
0: I do too. I also think that – I think that people don't realize that um – a lot, of, a lot of stress, a lot of aggression. Um, it's like aggression actually is like paired with stress usually. You know what I mean? You, you, it's hard to be aggressive, super aggressive without a little bit of like adrenaline pumping and stress and all these things. And the truth is like um, there's so, so much of the training. If you're actually training this stuff, what you're training yourself to do is be calm. That, and that's like totally counterintuitive because right. people think, no, you got to go in there like Rocky and you know want to win. And it's like, well, in a fighting config, in, in a competition, sure, on some level, but really, really, really great people, kind of in any sport. But it's even more counterintuitive in fighting. Is is, they, is you need to cultivate calm yes. and the ability to 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 be clinical and think calmly, control your breathing because like you get exhausted if you can't control your breathing. And, and the truth is, is that those are life skills that are actually very – they, they cultivate a very a, – a calm. They, it helps you cultivate calm in life. And the thing I always really liked about Aikido um, is that there aren't attacks in it. It, 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 it was developed by a guy Morihaya Ishiba, who was a he was an all round bujutsu master. He was like in jitsu kendo, um, karate, all these things, and he he developed aikido because he had joined the global pacifist movement. He hmm. he he was like a, one of the most respected like cross form Japanese martial artists, and he became he joined the same um, movement for pacifism that Gandhi was a part of in like the twenties. And he he believed that martial arts could contribute to uh, passivism if they refined, and he and Aikido was a refinement of Kendo, Jujitsu, Judo, um, and and he basically said, "I'm going to develop a non-aggressive martial art that has all it has no attacks, and there's an uke in it, like for the the thing, but." it's only a defensive and it's like that that phrase we all hear redirection of energy yeah. the conversion of negative energy into into neutral that's like the that's his that is really his contribution he was like you can take you can take the most aggressive energy and you can neutralize it and you can neutralize it very peacefully or you can neutralize it with a little more teeth in it depending on how aggressive the person's being but i loved that i thought that was amazing because it was like I wasn't like looking to be in fights, but I loved the idea that you had con- that you could have control and you could like neutralize and and I I think I think there's something kind of amazing in that. I think it's like actually aligns with like yoga with with meditation w- with all all things surfing. I mean, I-, I that's what surfing is. It's like there's all this energy coming at you, like and it's gonna like put you into the rocks or rock you or flip you over or hurt you, and you but you you don't you don't let that happen. You kind of, you look at it, you look at a million waves, you figure out how to move yourself, you get in there and you get the exact opposite of getting torched. You get like the best thing ever. Right. And I, I, I think things like that that are where you have to, those are like Zen, you know what I mean? And I think ju, like Jitsu. what real, what you're saying is really ultimately like why he was great is he had, he had, he had like the deepest Zen yeah. of anybody in the whole thing. Cause he was the calmest and he had like the micro 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 understanding of forms but really like it's something deeper it's like he it it's like neo in the matrix he's like seeing it w- with more granularity yeah he had all,
1: everything he yeah. had
0: the full package of it did you ever see any of
1: Steven Zagal when he was very young, mm-hmm. when he was yep. teaching in Japan?
0: I was totally fast. I mean, it's like, and it's really, it's weird, like, right? Like me, right? Like, act, <laughs> uh, like, like serious actor, thoughtful right. actor. I'm like, what did you, you know, but I like above the law Yeah. because I was into all that stuff when above the law came out and there was the scene in above the law and he's in an Aikido, you know, gi with the black thing and he's doing this thing and I was riv- I was like oh my god like like this is so cool like when have you ever seen this in a movie Yeah. And um and he was a you know big guy and he made it violent. Yeah. a very
1: unusual sort of contribution to martial arts because in martial arts movies. Yeah. He made it realistic. Yeah. Like it was one of the most realistic martial arts movies ever.
0: Yeah, it was and you know when you look back on it 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 <laughs> there's things about it that don't date super well. Yeah, of well. course, but, but he was um,
1: Undeniable. Literally, like,
0: literally, what you just showed—the yeah. thing, the thing of the guy coming—it's that simple thing: mm-hmm. that thrust and the break and the thing. It's, um, yes. He also in the film um, when the guys come at him, in I see this is, shows you how it burns your brain. There's a scene where there's in a like a bodega, and the guy, I think he smashes a bottle, and he comes at him, and he does like a, a move in mm-hmm. Aikido. It's called like Kotegaishi. It's like he, um, it's like the wrist. You know, it's like the the wrist break, flip over. And it was just like, oh my god! Like he's doing, he's doing like you know, nuanced Aikido moves in a big action movie. It was kind of cool.
1: Well, he was one of the first, I think, the first Westerner to run a dojo in Japan. I mean, he was a legitimate Aikido master.
0: Yeah, and I think. But what's interesting is when I studied over there, he was it was it was was slightly controversial because I don't think he was he had broken away from like like Yushiba Mm -hmm. um, Aikido. He was doing. He was doing like the way that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is not pure Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. He was doing something with this it was somehow it was associated more with Osaka than Tokyo where the Hombu Dojo and Aikido is. And I there was some controversy. Yeah, there was there was just, you know, like the way things are with schools of thought. Mm. But um but yeah, he had a certain legit kind of thing and it's really wild because people like Mike Ovitz who was like the power agent of all of Hollywood in the 80s you know, Mike got a black belt training with Seagal. Like he was really serious Aikidoist. Um,
1: I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it but, does.
1: But he's a cautionary tale, too, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not even Ovis. I mean, uh, Seagal. You know. Yeah. What he I, become?
0: I guess. I honestly, my my I, I don't know anything about him uh, past a certain point. Like I I. I I don't know what went on there. Um yeah. but, you can uh, leave it at that. Yeah, I I I, I don't. Um <laughs> Tell me about your new movie. Let's leave it at that. Um it's called Motherless Brooklyn. Uh it's it was a you know, it was kind of a big swing because I wrote it and I produced it and Is this the
1: first time you've done that?
0: Directed it. Um I no, I I produced and directed the the first movie I uh directed is keeping the faith with it's um it's uh, me and Ben Stiller play a rabbi and a priest who are best friends and they and they both fall for the same girl uh, did you ever see that one no i didn't <laughs> it's funny yeah you'd like it um ben is hilarious in it uh that was obviously lighter um that was a lighter uh kind of movie but it was in i'm i've lived in new york th- almost 30 years and i like making movies in new york a lot that was a pretty light one this one is more um This takes place in the '50s in New York, and it's kind of um, it's got a Chinatown, L.A. Confidential kind of a noir um, bent to it. It's a it's a mystery, a murder mystery of kind of that leads into some of the stuff that happened in New York in the '50s that is hard to believe um, because New York was New York was run by and it was run by basically a Darth Vader-like figure who was never elected to public office. And pe- excuse me, people thought he was the parks commissioner of New York. But he was – n- from 1930 to 1968, he had uncontested authoritarian power over New York City and New York State. And he made every significant decision about the way that the modern infrastructure of New York was built, where the roads went, where the bridges were built, what was torn down, where the projects were built. He – and he was very racist and he baked like really discriminatory things that almost sound like conspiracy theory. They're so wild and intense into the decisions he made. He was responsible for the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn and going to L.A. And nobody knows this. Like you think of New New York as the great – that's like the great egalitarian melting pot city where democracy works except that it was run by a total autocrat. For 38 years? Yeah, for – he he's largely it's broadly accepted that no mayor or governor of New York could do a single thing without his say-so from basically about 1930 to about 1968.
1: How is that even possible? Yeah. And how how come no one knows about this? How did you find people out?
0: Do, well, people do. There's 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 huge like in one of the big um Burns Brothers documentaries about New York, there's a whole literally almost a whole episode on him. Um there's a great book about him. Uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize. And there's, uh, his name was Robert Moses. And he, you know, there's Robert Moses State Beach in New York. and But literally, people think he was the parks commissioner. But he was, and he was like Anakin Skywalker. I he He was like a Jedi Knight. He was a big liberal, progressive believer in progressive change and government reform. And in his early years, he got crushed by Tammany Hall and and the power brokers, and he went. He went dark. Went completely. <laughs> yeah, that's not wow. the most imposing picture of him that you've that's got a, up. There's no, other that's ones. A,
1: that's an imposing picture. Find one of the picture. ones of
0: him. Find one of the ones of him standing in front of his models. There's famous ones of him. That um, looks like a man of yeah, will. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, the, to the left of that, and I keep going to the left of that, because um, there's a scene in our movie where Alec Baldwin is literally li- like that. Yeah, that he, Alec Baldwin plays a character who's based on him. Inspired by him, I should Mm -hmm. say. It's not at all in my film. It's not the true story, but yeah, there you go. Um, And um, but I think this idea. I was really interested in this idea. You know what's great about Chinatown as a film is um, it's mostly sexy. The you you don't know what the hell is going on in that movie, like until the until twenty minutes before the end, you have absolutely no idea really what's going on in that movie. But it's just sexy. It's like the music is amazing. The photography is incredible. The actors are like adult and real. And he's, he's Nicholson, right? right. You know, the hook is like Nicholson is so cool. You really will kind of follow him. You'll watch the way he deals with anything and just you're just laughing and enjoying it, right? But underneath it all, when you're done, you go... Did that – is that true? Did L.A. – is L.A. basically built on stolen water? Is that like the – like L.A.'s original sin is that people made fortunes. The valley was just farms and they stole the water from up north and, you know, rigged the game and made these gigantic fortunes by irrigating San Fernando Valley. And you you, you come away with like – you come away with an awareness that like the California story is not exactly what it's cracked up to be, right? It's there's some big crimes underneath it, and and the people who and and that in that movie, it's like, yeah, the people ripped everybody off. They faked droughts. They they created fortunes themselves, and the type of people who did that also raped their daughters. Literally, that's like what that movie is about. It's um, and it and it's pretty bleak. It's like you can't make a difference. You cannot change anything. Like, and if you try. The person you're trying to help is going to end up with a bullet through her eye, dead on the steering wheel. Like it's it's a really dark movie, and people forget that because you just go, oh Nicholson, Faye Dunaway. It's like no, nah, that's a that's a really really bleak movie. But I love I love the idea that that you can do things where like the 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 pleasure of it is like the pleasure of movies. It's grown up. It's kind of what we've been talking about. It's like. Like if you said to most people if you showed Chinatown to most critics today, they'd go long, boring, whatever. It's like you want to say, fuck off. Like fuck off. Like what, what is it that you who why are you why are you assuming people can't handle grown up? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I think that that I really dig those things where you go through the movie starts, you look at it and you go, This looks really good. This looks really grown up. This is big. The actors are, like, like adult and authoritative. The dialogue's great. The music is great. It's hypnotic. And your brain just goes, I don't know what's going on. I don't care. I'm bought in. And, then, and if there's a, a character in it that you can hook into, you float. You float through those movies. You just kind of go, where's this going? What's going on? I don't, oh, man, that guy. She's great. He's great. Wow. Like, this is just all juicy and great. And by the end, you get somewhere and you kind of go, I'll be damned. That actually was about big things. Did those things really happen? You know, that's – I really dig those movies. I dig Chinatown, L.A. Confidential. Um, I think The Godfather works that way. The Godfather is about immigrants. You know, it's about immigrants normalizing in America. Y- you don't – it's like that's a long movie. Yeah. You just settle in for that movie. Right. Your Your brain settles in and just goes – this just couldn't be better. I couldn't be happier to be watching this scene after scene after scene. Cl- and, I, and I wanted to make. I wanted to try. I wanted to try to make one of those, you know, uh, myself. Like I wanted to try to to um, make one of those because I don't. It's it's cliche to say like they don't make those anymore, but right. it. But I think you know they were always hard. It's not like they were easy once and now they're hard. They're all they were always hard, but I I would look at people like Warren Beatty, he made Reds, you know, which is one of the great movies from that era. Even like Spike Lee doing Do the Right Thing, I don't know if you remember when that movie hit. Sure. It was massive. It yes. was a huge deal to me. I was like eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. I saw that movie and I was like, he just rewrote the game. Like this kid. Who the hell is it? He, right. he wrote it, he directed it, he acted in it, he got public animated to do the music. Yeah. It's about his neighborhood in New York, but it's about like race in America. It's like, oh my God, that guy just took like a huge swing and connected on yeah. like every level. And it didn't even give you some BS kind of like, don't worry, it's gonna be okay in the end. Right. It was like Martin Luther King says violence is not the way. Malcolm X says sometimes it's the only rational response what do you think you know what I mean it was so ballsy it was so ballsy that movie and I think like after a while it's sort of like I just started feeling like well you know I don't really need to gig I might as well I've worked with a lot of great people I've worked with some pretty great directors including Spike and I was kind of like I've been in New York a long time and I just thought it was really weird no one knew that story and I was like I'm gonna try to make one about this you
1: know, as someone who doesn't make movies, I always wonder, like, what happened between, like, say, Steve McQueen's Le Mans. Mm-hmm. You, did you ever see that movie? Of course, you, yeah. you m- remember how there's no dialogue at all for like the longest time? And I remember I watched it recently within the last couple of years. And one of the thoughts was, I don't even know if they could do this today. If anybody would allow them to make a movie where no one talks for a long time, they're just sort of setting the stage of what it means to be a race car driver mm-hmm. and what's the atmosphere of the races. It's just the. F- the idea that you were saying earlier about having this short attention span theater this this the these movies that are designed for what they believe is a populace of people that don't have the interest in something that's m- more unique or something that requires thought something that drags yeah. you in and that was much more common in the past like why was it more common in in that era of mcqueen and all those other movies that they did like that and what has happened? And like these rare examples, like when a guy does break through with something, like do the right thing, mm-hmm. or a, 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 f- a few other examples. Why doesn't that stimulate the the appetite for more? Well, is it that hard to do?
0: On one level, on one level, yeah, it's 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 easy to recognize when they're great, but it's still not e- it's still not easy to make them great. I, it's still we're talking about people who are some of our greatest artists or directors you know right. what i mean they and lots of people they try on some level um they try on some level but they just not everybody is spike lee right you know what i mean um not everybody is francis coppola or you know it's it's like it 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 People, people. Sometimes people make things, and they actually are slow. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 you know what I mean? Work. You're like yeah. it's, it misses. It's, yeah, it's, it's like it's like in Spinal Tap when they're like it's a it's a fine line between stupid and clever. You know, no, it's a fine line between clever and stupid. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's. Um, I think people try, but uh, I d- I think I think that uh, there are some people who really do think Jaws had a big effect on movies because it it was it was like the first true blockbuster, right? And I don't know. You know what actually though? I'm 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 wrong. I I think that what happens more often than not is adult people get the jobs at the big companies that make the decisions about what to make, right? And at a certain point they sort of age out. They start to age out and they don't actually have any idea what what the vibe is? They don't know what to make for the coming wave of younger people, and so these little windows open up now and then where, in that era, they needed there was they needed new people. They needed like you know George Lucas making American Graffiti. Nobody thought that movie was going to be a hit. Nobody, you know, um, they, they they open up. They say we don't know what to do do something different and a couple of new voices like come in and they make things that are, are really different you know but the idea that that was only then like there's a whole book right now about 1999 you know there's this book that came out about how 1999 was one of those years where because the studios had kind of lost their sense of exactly what to do and Miramax was making a shit ton of money on on auteur driven movies made for low cost and the studios all went and set up little mini Miramaxes, right? And the result was that like in that year you had like Meg, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Alexander Payne, Spike Jones, David O Russell, Fincher, the Wachowskis, like an unbelievable array of directors made really really memorable films in that year and i think it was because it was like another one of those moments like we 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 don't know what to we don't know what to do we're just going to have to like close our eyes and go you kids you kids figure it out you know what i mean
1: well that's the, the thing about films it seems to me it's such a collaborative effort and when you have so many moving pieces and so many people involved that have a a, and a say in the decision-making process. It's got to be insanely difficult to get something out that's pure.
0: Yes, that's true. That's true. I, Francis Coppola said that um, the best thing about making films is that they're collaborative, and the worst thing about making films is that they're collaborative. <laughs> <laughs> he also said it's the last It's the last moral totalitarian decision um, Job in the world, like being a director or something—I can't remember—but it's true. You, you—it's—it's it's a very, um, because like I made this movie, I had like, I had um, a fraction of like the budget of *The Irishman*, right? I'm just, which I'm naming only because it was a uh, a period piece, you know, *Mines* in the '50s, that one's crazy things. And and I had like, like less days to do it than I had on my first movie that I directed. How many um, days did you have to do it? F- like forty-six, which for perspective, Fight Club was a hundred and thirty day shoot. Um and and forty-six days is less than most the movies I've made, and this was a big nineteen fifties like period film with a huge like French connection style char- car chase in the opening, running through Harlem, across the bridge, down into Queens. You know, we weren't we weren't like making a little kitchen sink drama. Um And to figure that out, that is like – you can be like, I've got the vision. We're going to do this. But there's a kind of madness in saying, this is what I want to do. I want to recreate the old Penn Station that doesn't exist anymore, right, which we have in the film. Like my character goes into the old Penn Station that was torn down in 1963 or whatever. And and you only pull that off with the most kick-ass – Justice League of collaborators yeah. imaginable. Like they make you look like you're a visionary or know what you're doing because you get these people with crazy talents of their own. And I don't mean just cast, although I had that too in this. I mean like some of the very, very, very best people bring their their talent to like making that work. and um, And so that's like when you say like, your job is, is more to say, I have really talented people. I've got to get their frequency wave in line with mine. If I can get their frequency wave in line with mine, then it can be my, my idea, my vision, my weird ideas can be in there. But it's, with, it's executed with the help of people who believe in it and buy into it. You know, that's, that's the key is like you're, you're, you're marshaling people um, to get to it in sync with you. And um, and you know I have a sick cat. It's like uh, Bruce Willis, Alec Baldwin, Willem Dafoe, huh. Bobby Cannavale, um, Michael K. Williams, who was like Omar on The Wire. Wow! Uh, this great actress Gugu and batha and and Leslie Mann and you know on and on and on. And I got and all these people did this as a favor to me because I didn't have any money to do it. Wow! So from starting with Bruce, Bruce was like. Uh, you know, he said to me a long time ago, I'll, if you have something good, I want to be in it. I really want to do the kind of stuff you're doing. And I really mean it. I'll I'll do anything you want to do and help you get it done. I was like, he's not going to remember that. You know, (laughs) he's going to be like, sure, sure. But I'm doing diehard like for the rest of the year. And he didn't. He was like, where do you need me? I told you I'm in. Wow! Let's get it done. And basically Bruce, Alec, Willem, people like that I practically call them co-financiers on my film because they. I only got it done because they deferred everything, you know. And I think that's really cool.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. When you write something like this car chase scene through Harlem, I mean, I would imagine the logistics of pulling something like that off, it's got to be insane.
0: It was, yeah, it's nuts. Like, How
1: does, when you wrote it and you brought it to the people that are the, the stunt people, the people that coordinate these chase scenes, were they like, oh, fuck? People
0: get – people – Yes. Um you know, doing the things is not hard. Getting permission to yes. do them in Manhattan is is tricky and there are people who look at you like you're dreaming, man. Like right. you're not and 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 you, what you do is you go out and scout and you start you say, look, this is we can do this here and this here, and this isn't hard. This isn't hard. We only need this one block cleared. Those things. Then you like find that place where you're like, I want him to do a huge screeching turn onto Frederick Douglass Boulevard because it has a nine-block stretch where there's very few buildings that don't look like they're in the fifties, right? Uh, Leading up to a bridge that you want to go over the bridge. And then you get with like the guys at the NYPD and you beg. Like you just <laughs> beg, you go look. We're gonna be like the Dirty Dozen. We're gonna have the. We're going, everything is gonna be so well planned and ready to go. We'll be able to. We'll say just shut it down, and then twenty minutes we'll be done. You know what I mean? Like you, you start twenty minutes. Well, no, just for a, a right, shot. For you know, scene. it's like we just need to do this once or twice to get this this turn of the car around the corner and headed up the avenue with eighty cars from the fifties. And you're you know.
1: using legitimate nineteen fifties cars yeah. as well. Yeah. So those things handle like. They're horrible. They're boats with wheels on so them. So
0: any car that's actually gotta be doing anything, like going fast or mm-hmm. making a big turn, you have to have four of the same model that you've painted identically because they're going to break. Like they will break. You'll yeah. push one hard, it will break. And then you have to like bring the other one in. Wow. You know what I mean? So you you, you and you, you basically can't make them go fast. You know, they don't have pickup. Right. So you're you're figuring out like what are the moves we can make that make it feel like this thing is really bombing and um and uh and how do we cross cut around the fact that it takes 3 blocks for it to accelerate i mean like literally to go from you know 10 miles an hour to 40 you need like literally like 3 or 4 blocks so you have to like get it up to speed for the section that you want it going fast and it's 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 um I'm not doing another period movie. I'm doing a mo- <laughs> the next movie. I'm doing is going to have Tesla P100Ds <laughs> that go like zero to sixty and two point four.
1: Now, when you when you write this out, like how much time is involved in preparation of writing this and then doing all the scouting and then trying to implement this whole? It
0: took me a couple years to write it because um, I haven't even said in. Um, I think you have to know yourself. I'm not Bogart. I'm not like Jack Nicholson the magic they bring is the magic they bring. And the character I put at the middle of this is the, dete- the detective that I play has Tourette syndrome um, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. So he <laughs> he can't, um, like when he, you know, when he meets a blonde at the bar, he's like the opposite of Bogart. He, he tries to light her match and can't stop blowing it out because it doesn't sound right to him. So it's he's kind of a train wreck. Like he's the opposite of, <laughs> of a cool detective. Um, and in fact, Bruce Willis plays the cool detective who he works for. So like Bruce Willis is Nicholson. Um, but when something bad happens to him and my guy has to like step out of the assistant role, you know, he's just, like his operative because he has a great memory. He has like a photographic memory and some really weird ability to like because his brain is – is chaotic and crazy. Um, He has certain little gifts that Bruce Willis like relies on him for and believes in him. But when, but when he has to sort of figure out what happened to his boss and solve this mystery, like he kind of has to come out on his own out of his comfort zone and kind of become a detective. And, um, and it, it, and it's like, you know, he's ticking and twitching and shouting and doing things that make it very difficult for him to move in the world. So that's kind of like I had that part of it and I was grafting it into this story of um of of what happened in New York in the 50s and it took me a long time to write it and get it right. But once I had it right, um you know, we probably prepped the movie for like 9 months. We 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 were we were actively like scouting New York. You know, and, and imagining, like, where can we do this and how can we do this? But I live in New York, so I loved it. I, like, get on my motorcycle and go up to Harlem and Washington Heights and and literally, like, cruise around, just cruise around. I know the area really well anyway. But sometimes you just have to, like, just – and that's where a bike in New York is really great, like, because you can just sort of float around, float around, float around, mentally mapping like where you can do a thing, and um, and it was it was pretty fun. Actually. That's such a
1: bold move, riding a bike in New York City. No, it's not. It's, it's not. not? LA, is,
0: La is way, way, way How more so? dangerous. Because New York, no one's going that fast, right? Um, hmm. You can be. I can't explain it in New York. There's a rationality to the way people are moving, but I'll tell you the number one main thing new new york requ- new york driving it's so stop and start and it's the things nobody has time to be on their phone and in la if i'm on a bike i would say i regularly look to my right and i look to my left and both people on either side of me are texting do you ever see i mean yes all the time all the
1: time when i'm in and, my truck especially cuz i can look down yeah and you yeah.
0: realize you realize that in this town of people at any given moment are texting on their phone. And it's just appalling. And it's so dangerous. Yeah. And I'll be on, if I'm on a motorcycle in LA, I'll look at people. They're texting for so long. And finally, I'll have to like hit the horn or something and look at them. I've gotten past like, you know, anger and literally just looked at people, flipped my thing up and gone like, please, like, please get off your phone, like you're going to kill somebody and kill yourself. But but we can't. We can't break the addiction. People cannot break the addiction. Um, and and I, I, it's not a more. You, you realize, it isn't a character flaw. It's not. It's not like what an asshole. It's everybody. It's your mom. It's your sister. Mm. It's your friend. Everybody is doing it because we're addicted, like yeah. a device addicted. But but when you're on a bike and you realize like i am floating in a sea of people who are going to mess up someone is going to mess up and they've got airbags and you know new modern stuff and i you're on this but like you don't have anything yeah i don't i think i think i think this is way more dangerous riding um than than new york
1: that makes sense when you talk about things like the 405 or the 101 where mm-hmm. people are flying by and passing and changing lanes and the, the texting too. Yeah, and also
0: the big avenues. People get up, you know, yeah. Wilshire Boulevard, sure. whatever. They're looking at a thing and they blow that red light mm-hmm. right? all the time. And half the times you hear about or see bad accidents here, um, especially if they involve motorcycles. Or something it's like it, the, it's not like the person screwed the, the the person on the bike didn't screw up. Someone went through a red light, right, and just broadsided them, or they t boned them. You, mm-hmm. think, you know, it's it's just it's like, do you really want to make the bet? the huge bet on yourself uh, where, where what you're riding on is other people's um, concentration, you know, it's, were you
1: riding when you were living out here?
0: I've never, I, I've always lived in New York. So when
1: you've been here, it's only for a few months at a time. Yeah, no, I've, I've,
0: I've, I have, I've spent winters out here. I, I like to surf and um, I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm like not a, I'm not like a, Pro experienced like veteran motorcycle rider at all. I just enjoy it and like out here it's fun. You know, like go up the Angeles Crest Road or something mm, yeah. pretty like that. You know, I love driving up there. Yeah, it's really it's yeah. really it's cool. There's California, LA, LA is hard. No one likes the being on a motorcycle in LA. Sucks. It's like just hot and everybody's in your face. But but the you know California is incredible. There's 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 so much. There's so many amazing places to go in California, and um, and I kind of got hooked on it out here.
1: I and so know. then, when you were in New York, you just said, "Fuck it, this is actually a good place to ride a bike."
0: No, I, it's not. It's not even that. I ride bicycles too in New York. I I like it, but it's more just that it, the thing that pulls you in. I mean, I have lots. Of, I, you know, I like to surf. I fly planes. I like. There's a lot of stuff that I think is much, much, much that's thrilling. It's much safer than riding motorcycles. It's not like my jam. Mm-hmm. But once you have that skill set, once you can do it, if you have a bike, there are those times in LA and in New York too, where you take a look at like the gridlock and you're just like, I'm going to be, if I'm going to be in this for at, forever. Mm. And on a bike, you can lane split and just get, you know, you can get where you need to go. And in New York too, you can, you can zip around, um, in ways that is, uh, Efficient.
1: So, how long did this? I mean, how long did you sit on this story? How long did you know about this? And what was the process of having this sort of build in your mind to the point where you wanted to write it, direct it, produce it, cast it?
0: Um, Honestly, I read the book exactly 20 years ago. I read it in the fall of '99 when I was. uh, When Fight Club came out. That's right around the time as I read this novel, Motherless Brooklyn. But but the novel's about the teretic detective, who's trying to solve um, the murder of his his only friend, basically. But it takes place in the '90s. It's not about any of that stuff about um, New York in the '50s or anything. It's just, and it, the the character is just amazing, though, like amazing. So when I read it, the hook was the character. I was like, I was like, what a great character it's so it's such a wild he's like a, just this hot mess of of he's smart but he's totally messed up he's he's funny but also really pretty painful and lonely and it was just everything and I was like that's I, I could get so into trying to figure that out um, for reasons that are a little hard to explain the tone of the book feels like a 50s detective novel but it's set in the modern world, and I was afraid in a movie that would feel a little bit like the Blues Brothers, like guys in fedoras, but a Prius is floating right, by, right, and so right. you're sort of like, mm, maybe this would just be cooler if we m- set it in the '50s. And I talked to the author about that, and he was super into those movies, and so he said, okay, wow. So then, then, but then the middle period was the period of mashing that up with the with these sort of stories, the New York Chinatown kind of of it the 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 deep dark history of what really went on in New York and that took a long time and then I I had it ready in 2012 I was really ready to do, go and I just couldn't get it to I couldn't get Bruce said he was in and that was kind of angry but I couldn't get everyone I wanted together at the same time and I couldn't get the the amount of money I needed or that I thought I, I wanted and I couldn't get a studio to to back it um because honestly, you know number one, like I'm not like you know I'm not like a green light anything he does kind of an actor that's it's just you know i think that's a that's a a different sort of thing, but also, I was out there saying it's sort of like rain man meets um l a confidential, and people's eyes just kind of cross they're like <laughs> they're like bring us the next one like they're like <laughs> we, we don't get it we don't get it um we we don't get yeah it's like uh and also I got like I had like this idea of getting I love Radiohead and I like jazz and I wanted to like I got Tom York to write a song for the film but I got Wynton Marsalis to do all the jazz ah. and stuff and people were also they were like this is these things are not going to go well together you know and then they went to get like a lot of people have said to me which is not—it's uh, not me. T- a lot of people have said to me it's the best music in a, f- a film that they've heard in many, many years. Flea, Flea played trumpet and um, and bass on Tom York's track in the film, and and Flea—you know—Flea's like a really good trumpet player, and his dad was a jazz musician. And I didn't know he, that. Flea came out of the movie like crying. He was like, "That's honestly my favorite music that I've ever heard in a wow. film." Um, and I think and and and. But you can't you can't tell people that you, you. I thought that would work. I thought this mashup would work because I knew Tom and I knew he loves Charles Mingus and and I knew Winton was capable of doing. He's really interested in dissonant, weird, um, edgier kind of modernist music as well. And I was like, this is going to work, and it and it did. It's it's really the music's amazing in the film. Um, it it's like its own. Like the rec- the records out now, and people are flipping out about the- just the music. And the movie hasn't even come out yet.
1: With such a crazy combination of factors and details that you smashed all together, yeah. And it's got to feel, first of all, it's got to be a tremendous relief, and also feel amazing that it's
0: you did it. I, d- I do feel that. I feel um, like it would have haunted me, and uh... I, I, it, it 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 was rattling around in my head such a long time. I felt very discouraged about it at times um, because I was kind of like you know I've done a few okay things like I've done some stuff that was weird and that people didn't understand and it's it's come together pretty great you know what I mean and um, and uh, uh, you sort of go God I never I never expect anybody to give me money to make something like that's that's just risky like I would never put money into making movies never like it's too risky you know and I get it so I'm not like I deserve this like right. but but it was more like I, I sometimes I was just like am I going to be able to figure this out or not am I am I going to get this done and uh and I think getting it done and having it um not having quit on it uh and in some ways feeling not actually knowing that it's better that I made it now I know more I was more if I'd tried to do it 20 years ago I couldn't I didn't have the chops to do some of the things like working with Spike Lee and Alejandro and Yuridu and people like that really like um, it upped my sense of how to do. I learned a lot about how to do a big thing without all the money in the world.
1: Now this is released nationwide, worldwide. Like when it's released on this Friday, right? Yeah,
0: this Friday. And it's uh, everywhere. Uh, like, it's day after tomorrow, broad all release. over America. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a it's a wide release here. Um, I hope. Yeah, and I think honestly, like. The day it comes out, like you can either see Terminator like <laughs> nine point eleven, or or ours. There's like not, and I I like certify on the Joe Rogan experience. Like there's not a grown-up human being who will not um, be stoked about this film. Like I I can s- say that people who are seeing it are are very 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 into it and very bought in because it is one of those like um it's a it's a big meal but it's a really like it's a really rich good meal and it has amazing amazing performances I I don't think Alec Baldwin has ever been better in a movie honestly and I think Willem Dafoe is amazing um Michael K Williams is amazing and uh the music is great and and it's a it's a cool story and I think um I think it's kind of one of those things that it's worth going to the theater to see. But I, I guarantee you it's more worth your time than another Terminator movie.
1: <laughs> well, uh, it sounds like it to me. I'm, I'm really excited about it, and I will see it for Thank sure. You. Thank yeah. you. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much for coming in here, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye, everybody.
0: Are you still trained? You do. Like serious?